Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. As pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe the enemy is after your heart and mind, and we're stepping into the fray. This week, the guys discuss the reality of evil in the world. Where does it come from? How do we account for the evil we see around us? How should we engage with it as Christians? And what's all this about evil spirits anyway? Welcome to the conversation. All right, we're here with the usual suspects, Pastor Van, Keith Lowry, Kyle Wisdom, also on ministry staff here at Lake Ridge, and myself, Ben Lowry, co-pastor at Lake Ridge. We're excited for another Faith and Culture conversation. We're going to talk about evil today, and so we've brought our resident expert, Van Minner, um, to talk a little bit about his experiences with evil. Uh, so, you know, I, I was... Um, I was thinking recently, I, I don't spend a lot of time obsessing over the news or anything like that, but I do check the news daily to see kind of what's happening in the world. And every now and then, I'm just shocked by some headline or storyline um, describing some unfathomable wickedness, you know? And it seems like there's been a lot of headlines like that going on um, in the world. I, I saw recently that some woman had gone missing, for instance, and um, they discovered her. She'd been dismembered and placed in a lot of bags and hidden in a house somewhere. Um, I read a story about some six-year-old kid who was deliberately frozen to death in an outdoor shower somewhere in Chicago and placed in a bag by, like, his mom or something. Um, another young teenage mom took her baby out of the back seat of her car and threw it in the dumpster alive and drove off. And you're just reading stuff like this, and you're kind of going, what is happening in the world? You know, I think a lot of Christians read that and that kind of stuff. We're rightfully appalled by what we're reading, but we're also kind of perplexed. Yeah, we're surprised it. for right. some reason. And so how does, how does somebody come to a point where they're able to do this is the question I think that we all ask. How could something like this ever take place in the world. Now, here's the question I'd kind of like to throw out to the group here. Why do you think Christians are often perplexed by evil, and should we be? Bad theology. Oh, okay. sorry. Is, is that too simple of an no, answer? No, that's good. N moving on. Yeah, moving on. Um, but to maybe flesh that out just a tad, um, I think we have believed a cultural myth that humans are still essentially good. And I think it's born from perhaps a bad understanding of the Christian theology of humans being made in the image of God. You know, we talked about that before on this podcast, the idea that humans were created essentially uh, to be good and for the purpose of goodness. And I think we've forgotten Genesis 3 because we got so obsessed with Genesis 1 and 2, maybe. Um, and so as a culture, we've sort of forgotten the idea that human beings since the fall are now essentially turned away from God, not only in what we do, but who we are. Um, we, of all people, should be least surprised when these things happen. I think, um, so as a, a believer, if, if I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind, my thinking, and uh, uh, I'm moving farther and farther away 
from the things that are just becoming common in the headlines today in the way that I think and how what my desire for people in the world um, is within my own heart. Now, I know it's not going to get ever turn into that apart from Jesus' return and you having a new earth, but I think that's why it's more shocking to the believer, at least for me, that the farther away I get from those things that once characterized my life, the darkness, the sin, and all those things, and then you read about these heinous acts, um, it's just shocking to the senses. It's not what I gravitate toward. So when I hear about other people doing these things, it, so it, it's, it's perplexing in one sense, but not surprising because you look at Romans 1 and people, mm-hmm. God gave people over to just terrible desires and it only gets worse. So I'm not shocked by it, but at the same time, it's, it's just, um, it, it's uh, mind boggling when you hear, I mean, some of the things you just cited about headlines you've read recently, mm-hmm. I mean, I just don't, I can't fathom how people bring themselves to do these things, but I get it based on what scripture teaches. So then you're saying you are now so sanctified and righteous that you just, it's, that's why it shocks you. Well, (laughs) I think you're, yeah, between you and I. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I know what you mean. I remember as a kid growing up playing um, uh, football. There were get winter games where you would go out and play in the freezing cold, and we, you'd come back inside during halftime, and your hands are n- frozen to the point of not being able. Your hands are frozen to the point of not being able to even move your knuckles, really. You know, um, and uh, if you put your hand under cold water, it felt extremely hot because of the difference in temperature, right, from how cold it was outside to the room temperature water year. So I, I know what you're talking about. There's a spiritual reality there at work as well. The more we become like Christ and become sensitive to the things of the Spirit, um, the more shocking and grieved and even angered we are by the depravity that we find in the world around us. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So, so um, I, <clears throat> I was listening to a podcast this week. Uh, it wasn't our podcast, surprisingly enough. Um, Traitor. I mean, it, it turns out there are actually other podcasts in the world, and I realize they're not as good as this one, but um, sometimes I listen. That's sort of my secret vice. Right. Anyway, I one of the finest essayists of our time is a man named Anthony Daniels. He writes under the pseudonym um, uh, Theodore Dalrymple. <clears throat> He's written a bunch of really interesting books. He is a um, psychiatrist and medical doctor who's worked in Africa, among the poor in London, and among the British penal system, where among, among the prisoners, uh, as a physician and psychiatrist. And uh, he's written a bunch of really interesting books, and he's got a bunch of pro- provocative things to say. Uh, but he's very keen on the continuing reality, notwithstanding the cultural view, uh, that human moral agency is real. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So he's in this he's in this um, podcast this week, and the guys he's being interviewed, and the guys ask him, you know, people talk a lot about the root causes of crime. What do you think the root cause of crime is? And his comment was, the root cause of crime is the decision to commit it. This gets back in, indirectly to to what Kyle was saying earlier about bad theology. I think we have bad theology at times, and there's no. No question about that. None of us are perfect. But I think there's also 
this problem where we marinate in a culture and things seep into our thinking unbidden and unrecognized. And I think one of the things that characterizes a lot of Christian thought today, um, I, I actually think this has actually been cultivated and promoted in some sense by Christian publishers, particularly as it relates to raising children, is the view that uh, human behavior and moral choices are an artifact of two things, your environmental conditioning and um, your rational understanding about things. And so when people do bad things, the whole rehabilitative sort of mindset kicks in and, and we assume that they must have bad understanding or bad information. But the Apostle John said, light came into the world, but people loved darkness. It wasn't they didn't know it was light. It was that they preferred darkness to the light. And so I think the thing that we really have to remind ourselves of, and it's hard because we live in a culture surrounded by the view that, well, if people are doing pathological things, it must be because they've had some bad experience, traumatic past, or they just sort of are clueless about some important thing. But in reality, uh, it's possible to actually love what's evil and want that in your life, notwithstanding the destruction and disaster that ensues. Well, and I think this gets to the real switch there, and I think that's exactly what's going on for a lot of people when it comes to evil. We would like to believe humans are simply the victims of evil, and that's an entirely true statement that humanity is a victim of the evil of the world, that we experience suffering and corruption and death and wickedness that we did not cause ourselves. But that's only maybe at an individual level. When we look at the biblical narrative of how evil occurs, evil occurs first as a human choice and only secondly as an effect upon other humans. So when you look at the entrance of sin into the world in Genesis 3, uh, you can say that it is demonic influence, but it is human action that brings sin into the world. And then all the effects of sin follow that. And so what people often do is they want to say, well, actually what occurs now for us is our world is evil, and so it makes us evil when we would not have been otherwise. And the Bible would like to say the exact opposite about us. We're the evil people. Um, G.K. Chesterton, well, it's a story about G.K. Chesterton. Um, nobody's actually been able to verify the actual document, but it's um, a well-known story that there was a uh, newspaper that put out an, basically a question to the public to answer. What is the problem with the world? And uh, their shortest, pithiest reply was from G.K. Chesterton, who just simply wrote in, uh, Dear sirs, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. There's a movie I love, um, Spencer Tracy's, made in 1938. Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney, actually, uh, in his sort of youthful, exuberant best. Um, but it's called Boys Town, and it's the true story of a clergyman who opened up an institution for boys, street urchin boys, who sort of lived their lives on the street and were becoming nothing, making nothing of themselves, pursuing nothing for themselves or for the betterment of society and getting into lots of trouble. And so the thing that he decided to do was to open this institution, raise some money and open this institution where boys could come and learn how to become men, which is where we get the R&B band, Boys to Men. <laughs> um, no, not 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 actually, but um, <clears throat> but but the movie itself is really really good. But he says this thing in it that I I don't agree with, and it's sort of the underpinning philosophy of um, his of Spencer Tracy's character in the movie. 
this clergyman. He says, there's no such thing as a bad boy. Um, and then that, that philosophy sort of gets challenged by Mickey Rooney, who is doing his level best to be a bad boy. Uh, and within this institution and kind of Mickey Rooney's character's redemption throughout. But it does beg the question, is there such a thing as a bad person? I think, Kyle, you highlighted in the, at the onset of the conversation that there is kind of this progressive humanism is seeped into, I would say, Christian thinking that basically people are good. Um, and if we don't think that people are basically good, then we at least believe that they're morally neutral sort of morally benign beings who vacillate between wickedness and goodness based on whatever action we particular or we take in any particular direction. So to to piggyback on what you've said um, dad about about the fact that people love evil. We're we are not sort of walking this tightrope of moral neutrality. That's not the story of the scriptures. It's not the story of the scriptures post Genesis 3, right? Post fall. Um, we we made our decision. And now and now if anything, um, it's a shock when something redemptive occurs in the world. Um, we're bent toward evil from the beginning. Uh, David even prays, in sin did my mother conceive me. In my mother's womb I was given over to evil. I was I was uh, I was a sinner from the start. Um, and, uh, I, I think that, I think that we do well when we read these headlines to remember, you know, it's kind of the old Christian expression there, but by the grace of God go I, Hmm. um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was, I think the one who popularized this expression that the, the, the line dividing good and evil runs through the center of every human heart. Um, and I think the whole point about the human heart is critical. Um, as it happens, I, I didn't come here planning on talking about this, but it's relevant. As it happens, today is a two-year anniversary of the day I buried my daughter. And um, she led a very troubled life uh, in her late teen and early adulthood. adulthood. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm sort of... Um, I have a heightened sensitivity and visibility to these questions about how to understand evil because <clears throat> of the decade or so we went, we lived and sort of had an odyssey with her in some ways. She um, she died a very kind of horrible and uh, unintentional death, but in some ways self-inflicted, even though she wasn't trying to commit suicide. Um but as a father who first started kind of finding her slipping through my fingers and seeing this, we spent many sleepless nights. I can't, I mean, for two or three years, maybe, insomnia as we laid awake at night trying to figure out what we could say or do that would make the light bulb go off for her and for her to realize the self-destructive path she was on. And I think those were, in hindsight, wasted years. Because the problem was not informational for her. Um, it wasn't even environmental. The problem was affectional. It was what she had come to love. And, and so to your point about it going through the human heart, 
I think the whole point of the human heart has relates strongly to what our affections are. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I think a lot of parents who are dealing with a child who's, um, who's struggling, you know, they seek out better information. They seek out a better environment. All those things have their place and can be contribute to the overall thing. But what they really need to be concerning themselves is what are the affections? What are the loves? What are the attractions of my child? And a lot of times those affection shifts are often not necessarily something new and foreign coming in as much as it is just a realigning of those affections in a bad way. Mm -hmm. So things that should be smaller in our mind and in our hearts become overly large. So one of the the moment I realized I was a sinner, maybe to put it uh, in a funny way, as a kid was I was playing Legos at my grandparents' house when I was a kid. I was probably mm. late elementary school, and so I was in the depths of wickedness playing yeah. with Legos. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, as as a kid, I liked these spells where I could go off and be by myself and do my own thing. Well, I happen to have brothers, and one of the things brothers are great at is not letting you go off and be by yourself and do your own thing. So one of my, my younger brother came in and wanted to play with me, you know, because— What's a sweeter thing for a kid to do than want to play with his big brother? But I was determined. I decided that day, I want to be by myself. I want to do my own thing. I want to play with my Legos. And he kept bugging me and bugging me and pestering me. Play with me. Play with me. And eventually, he started taking my my stuff and throwing it away so that I could he I could focus on him. And there was this battle of desires at that moment in my heart. And I reacted in a way that I will that haunts me to this day. Without thinking, I grab this boy, throw him on the ground, and start jumping on him with the full weight of my body. You know, I'm a little guy, so it probably didn't do as much damage as I perceived. But I got about two jumps in, and then it was like I woke up. And I realized there was something inside of me about who I was that was willing to hurt the people I loved most if I allowed my desires to pull me in a particular direction. And I think as Christians, we have to look at ourselves and understand there is no bottom to the wickedness that we see in others or the wickedness that we are capable of within ourselves. And until we come, until we face ourselves that way, the headlines are going to confuse us. Well, I, I have real questions and concerns about the amount of time I spend in my life in close physical proximity to you now, Kyle. Um, that's, I think that's my chief takeaway. I'm pretty much going to stay away from the Legos. If don't, don't take my stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, my heart's pounding a little faster knowing that we're sharing a couch at the present moment, but uh, I won't take your microphone. You're it's all just yours. out of yeah. reach. Um, you know, I think that this whole question of human moral accountability and responsibility is one that we can jump we can jump on we we can get behind i think it's one that even the secular world can accept we don't often accept and but you can twist their arms and accept it right and it's certainly from a you know you've got guys like um theodore dalrymple um anthony daniels or alexander solzhenitsyn or even a, a modern contemporary of um um Anthony Daniels and a guy like Jordan Peterson, who, as a, as a psychiatrist, psychologist, and a professor, understands the nature of human responsibility and culpability in the decisions that we're making. But, but there's another player in Genesis. Adam and Eve didn't eat the fruit without provocation. In other words, there was someone there provoking 
the act itself. Um, he's called the serpent in Genesis. He's identified later in Scripture as the devil, Satan, our adversary, our enemy. We begin all of our Faith and Culture Conversation podcast by saying we believe that the enemy is after the hearts and minds of God's people. Um, the enemy is not someone that we see. When we say that, we're, we're talking about who the Scripture would identify as the ruler of this age, the enemy Satan. And I think he's the, he's the cog in this whole question of the problem of evil in the world that we, we're, we're less comfortable dealing with. Even as Christians who claim to believe in a spiritual reality and, you know, you know we, we'll quote Paul, um, our, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness, and we give a hearty amen to that. But when it comes to the spirit realm as... Um, being truly present and active in in what we see in the world, I think we're a little uncomfortable with that at times. Can we talk about that a little bit as a group? What do you guys see there? How do you see Christians engaging with that question? Well, we've had some um, that see a demon behind every bush. You know, they they want to for Christians and, and even for the lost, I think sometimes want to point to what Satan's fault or demonic forces at work as being the reason why that people act the way that they do or they themselves act the way that they do. I wouldn't have done it if, you know, this wouldn't have been the case. As we said earlier, sometimes we want to blame that on environmental uh, upbringing, uh, lack of information, whatever. I think I want to go back real quick and just say that I think that people don't want to be accountable for their actions. Uh, so when it comes to presenting the gospel, um, they would they would much rather have uh, the scapegoat of something else to point at instead of owning up. And, and Because what that means is I'm going to be accountable before God when you start sharing this news about needing Jesus and being forgiven of sin because it makes you guilty and people don't want to own their guilt. Well, we and, see that in Genesis too, right? God yeah, comes to Adam exactly. and he's like, well, the woman made me do it. And, yeah. well, the devil made me do it, she says, you know. So, right. so is, um, is that where Philip Wilson, the comedian, got yeah. that? The yes. devil made me yeah. do it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I, I do think there's certainly an element of, of influence going on in the world with, uh, you know, uh, Satan being the, the ruler of, of this world, uh, the prince of darkness, uh, we also have a society that's fascinated by that kind of talk. Uh, people are drawn to it. You see it more in our movies today and our TV shows that are coming out. There's uh, there's something that, you know, we talk about the affections of the heart. There's something that draws people to that kind of stuff because they think that in some weird way it, it's a good thing to pursue, uh, not realizing just how destructive it is and what the end game is for the one that's behind it. So I I, I think we can open ourselves up. To demonic and uh, uh, demonic influence in this world, uh, but at the end of the day, it's still a choice that I made to open myself up to those things. So, um, to the to the what Keith was alluding to earlier, uh, the decision to make it is is the root cause of crime. <laughs> you know, the the decision to commit it. Um, uh, I think that that's still the starting point for all of us. But but the influence is there. I'm not saying it's behind every decision that we make sinful choice that people make, but there are certainly influences there that will want to aid and push people in that direction because it's it's the darkness of the world that we live in. I think you're absolutely right. 
uh, we, we do um, only very reluctantly sort of take responsibility for our choices as sort of human nature. It's fallen human nature to want to point the finger at someone else or at some other thing. I mean, it, it, it made me do it. You know, there's, I know Theodore Dalrymple talks about the way that criminals would talk about the crimes they commit as they passive. would say things like very passive voice, you know, then the knife went in, not I stabbed him, but mm. then the knife went in, you know, um, even in, even in taking responsibility, we tend to talk about it in a way that we weren't sort of active agents in that. But I think there may be something else in addition to a, a lack of wanting to take responsibility that keeps us from really wanting to dignify the reality of spiritual activity in the world. Um, and, and I'm wondering if anyone else sees that yeah. also. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think that... Um you know, scientism is a thing. Scientism is the view that nothing is real that can't be measured by our senses. Um, it's a, it's a, sets on a foundation of assumptions about the material world being all there is. And so the question you're really raising is, is there, are there things we can't see? Are there events underway? Are there beings who have influence in the material world that are not of the material world or at least aren't susceptible to detection and um, with, you know, materially driven machines and sensors. <clears throat> I think it's pretty clear, you know, if you're a Bible-believing Christian that um, the spirit world is real. Um, I think it pervades Scripture. I think there's a sense in which sometimes we modern Westerners are blind and don't really have our consciousness alive to what the text of Scripture actually has to say about the the ongoing sort of interplay between the spirit world and the material world. I'll give you one example from Scripture that hardly anyone ever talks about, but it's a very real thing. There's this scene where Daniel has been praying and he's kind of worried about the fact that he's read some stuff in in prophecy that he finds troubling. He doesn't understand it, and he's asking for help. And um, several weeks go by, and he doesn't have any answers. And then suddenly this angel shows up and says some very curious things. He said, look, I was dispatched like three weeks ago to come and tell you, give you the answer to this, because you're highly esteemed in the, in the realms of heaven, you know. And I was going to come tell you the answer to this, but— you know, the the prince of Persia, Persia. Uh, and he's not talking about someone in the palace of Persia, he's talking about a spiritual being, blocked his way, prevented him from coming and giving this information to Daniel. And, and if Michael the archangel hadn't shown up to help him, he wouldn't be here even now, he said. And I'm about to go back and fight some more. So here's my point. That whole passage presupposes that there's some interrelationship between events we see in our own lives and things taking place in the spirit world. That's one tiny little example of things we don't really think about the implications of for our lives. Um, because I think in some level as Western Christians, modern Christians, we, we are less comfortable with non-materialist assumptions about our mm -hmm. existence. So I think that's real. I mean, there's a couple of good books that I think are really worth reading if uh, to kind of open your eyes to some of these things. One of which is called God at War. Um, 
And God at War is a really interesting book about human suffering and sort of delves into both the material and spiritual and spirit world aspects of human suffering. Uh, really interesting read. And the other one is called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. Um, really fascinating book. Look at a rigorous look at the, the biblical, I think the subtitle is Recovering the Supernatural View of the Bible. And uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing uh, to kind of look at that from a holy uh, new perspective, which really isn't new. It's sort of recovering, as he says, a point of view that would have been held by the people who were originally reading and listening to Scripture. Your point about Christians adopting a kind of a naturalistic, materialistic scientism, evidence-based, like if I can't see it, feel it, touch it, hear it, um, smell it, then it's not real. Um, or, or then at least it, I'm, I'm kind of dubious about it. You know, I, I, we can't be sure, you know. Um, I think that points in two directions. On the one hand, it impacts the way Christians understand uh, the activity and the presence of evil in the world. But I think on the other side of it, it also sort of hinders our perception of what God is doing in our midst in a spiritual way. I think we see this in the way that we approach our our weekly gatherings as Christians. Um, we, we can take a materialistic approach to that and view the scriptures as merely sort of a catalog of wise teachings and good advice and forget that the Spirit makes it come to life inside of us and transform us in, in a very real spiritual being kind of way. Um, we, you know, our, our treatment of baptism, we're very uncomfortable with anything spiritual taking place in water. Very uncomfortable with the wine and the bread, or the grape juice and the bread, as as it were, um, uh, with anything spe- more than just material symbolism. You know, any spiritual significance to those moments, or spiritual activity in those moments that Christ Himself ordained, is sort of viewed with great suspicion. Um, I think that's also a holdover from an Enlightenment perspective on the world that unless you can measure it quantitatively with your senses, then we're not, we're not dealing in reality. And I think that material— Or it's unsafe. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that materialism is also played into by not only just the history of scientism and Western culture, but I think also just the ego that that sort of gives to human beings, sort of this feeling that we're the top of the food chain, that we're at the apex of the ecosystem. And when you start thinking about the world in a spiritual sense, that there is a physical, spiritual unity to the universe, and that God and that angels and that demons and all these creatures, you know, are uh, acting and reacting and moving, and, and we're not even going to be able to see them, it it lends not only a great amount of fear, um, to the concept of demons, you know, I, everybody that asked me questions about demons sort of asked them in hushed tones. Like, hey, Kyle, what do you think about? Because it's scary. Like, that's a terrifying thought mm. that there are beings we cannot see or, 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 or physically resist who may be out to destroy our souls. Mm. Like, that's a terrifying thought. But then also, it places us so much more under independence upon God, upon his spirit, mm-hmm. that we would— that our very prayers might not reach heaven if God does not intervene to intercept them from from demons, or the very fact that um, there may have that people encountered by Jesus were unable to respond to him mm-hmm. physically until he released them. 
I think one of the things that I want to I want to be careful not to make broad brush strokes because <laughs> sometimes my own deficiencies I sort of assume everybody else has, and I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to do that here. Um, but I think that um, something I didn't understand well enough for much of my Christian life was the extent to which, um, in the same way that God gave dominion to human beings over the earth and put them in a position of authority with certain responsibilities and powers over the world, right, as his representative, in the same way he did that, he also placed spiritual powers in places of dominion in the spiritual world. And even over the nations of the world, this is kind of this language about the prince of Persia that I referenced in Daniel earlier. So there's a sense in which these angels or spiritual beings of some kind have been given dominion over other things. And in the same way that God doesn't take our dominion away because we've gone rogue, he doesn't necessarily take their dominion away because they've gone rogue. And so that's the source of this conflict. And um, I mean, I think there's a lot to discuss at some point about um, both this whole question of dominion and what it means for human beings to have mm-hmm. dominion in the world, which is one of those sort of first principles that the world hates, I think, or at mm-hmm. least the world system hates. But beyond that, I think there's a lot to, to think about in terms of, you know, those powers that have gone rogue that were given dominion over certain things. What happened to them after the cross? I mean, there's some biblical teaching about people have been disarmed and the powers and whatnot. At the same time, Satan continues to be referred to post-gospel, post-cross as the prince of this world and um, that our battle is against the principalities and powers, you know. And so there, there is a conflict and there are realities and probably it really merits a lot more um, effort, investment to understand what's going on here because it impacts the way we think about our faith walk. It impacts our strategy and our tactics as individual believers about how we engage in spiritual warfare. Well, you even see the demon in Acts beating up those guys that were going around trying to cast yeah. out, you know, <clears throat> yeah, demons. And so it's, it's still alive and well. Well, and I think it's important, the words you used, uh, that Paul uses to talk about them as them being uh, humiliated and disarmed, that the yeah. principalities and powers that oppose Jesus and his mission in the world have been uh, humiliated and disarmed, meaning that the war over the fate of the planet, you know. And I think it's important also to point out, as you did, Keith, that uh, people's dominion isn't being taken away. So, like, in the same way that there is the Prince of Persia, and I think there may be a Prince of Tyre in that section as well, um, in the same way that they are not being removed from their position, the actual human king of Tyre is also there as well. And he's also exercising the same dominion he has there that he was given by God as well. And so... Just because there's the presence of that demon and the, and the presence of the human, nobody's everybody's an agent in that. And so there's lots of choices sort of mm-hmm. all layering on top of each other. And everyone has constraints in terms exactly. of their freedom of motion, if you will, yeah. in terms of doing what they've been given authority to do. There's the, qu- a- the question that always comes to my mind about that Daniel passage is, so if God wants to send a response to Daniel— how is it that a prince of Persia could even 
resist what God wants to send to one of his own servants? Why even allow there to be a struggle? If God is almighty and all-powerful, which I know that he is, it's just interesting to Mm -hmm. me that it portrays a struggle right there. And what is that saying to us? Well, it highlights what we've already discussed is the very real reality of agency in the world, that God does dignify us humans and these spiritual beings with agency to either do his will or not. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I can remember another story from the Old Testament. Who was it? Elijah or Elisha? Names are hard for me these days. But the veil is removed from their eyes, and they look, and they see the hosts of heaven surrounding the hilltops mm-hmm. on the horizon. And, yeah. um, you know, you're kind of going, okay, what's real? You know, the the hilltops or when the veil is removed, the hosts of heaven that are on them. You know, yeah, right. what's more real there? And uh, yeah. the... the, the the language of scripture kind of highlights the fact that it's we who cannot perceive reality. And it goes back to this idea that scripture continually harps upon. Don't walk by sight, but walk by faith. Yeah, Faith is at war very often with our senses mm-hmm. to believe what God has said and to do his will in spite of what we see, hear, touch, taste, smell. Mm-hmm. We, you know. we way overinflate the comprehensiveness of our understanding based on our living condition and circumstances. We think we know far more than we do. And in this regard, I'd just like to go on record right now and say that if the Archangel Michael would like to fight my battles for me, like he did that guy <laughs> in Daniel, I'm all in. I'm, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm for it. Um, yeah. If it's to the extent he's not doing that already, I'm, I'm for that yeah. in <laughs> yeah, my personal too. life. Uh, so, but that kind of begs the question, and this is another thing I want us to talk about. What, how does the Christian, how should we as Christians engage the problem of evil in the world? What has God called us to do if our struggle is primarily not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of darkness, or however he phrases that? Um, what exactly have we been called to do as God's imagers or representatives, children in the world? Well, I think the first place you have to go um, is you have to put to death, therefore, what is what is wicked in yourself. Um, that constantly Paul and Jesus are calling people to repent and to turn away from the wickedness that they themselves have embraced. Um, that our first, the first battle we fight over evil in the world is the battle within ourselves. You and Michael Jackson both made that point very well. Michael Jackson's I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I didn't get quite so high in my falsetto (laughs) to make it, but I'll give that to him. You know, I think what you're talking about, though, is is an example of something kind of that precedes it, and the thing that precedes it is truth-telling. And this gets back to the very original um, events in the garden, right? At the end of the day, Eve was deceived because she was told a lie. And the lie was, you can be as gods, and the God who's there is not really for you. He's for himself. And, and by for, I don't mean existent, but I mean in your, in your, you know, in your favor, on your court, you know, on your team. Um, and I think that at the the, the thing we can do most powerfully to engage in spiritual warfare is to be truth-tellers. 
in whatever context and whatever form that takes. So gospel first and foremost, God is for you. You can't be, you're not a God, but God himself is for you and has intervened in the cosmos to bring you back to what he intended to begin with um, and what was lost in the garden eventually. But um, this business of being truth-telling, truth-tellers is, uh, it's not easy. It's not trivial. It's not minor. Um, well, Jesus said himself that he, the reason he came was to bear witness to the truth. Yes. I think another underestimated weapon we have in this is the, is the idea of prayer. Um, or not the idea of prayer, but the actual practice of it, that we are— <laughs> The concept of prayer. Yeah, if you just think about prayer enough. But, but if we actually pray, I mean, we've used the Daniel illustration several times, but it was the prayer of Daniel that incited a battle in the spiritual realm. It was his action yeah. that got that battle going. Uh, Jesus, when uh, the disciples bring to him a, a father whose uh, son they could not cast the demon out of, um, they ask him afterwards, Jesus, why could we not cast this demon out? And he actually tells them, this kind can only be cast out through fasting and prayer. Mm. He says, it is your spiritual uh, engagement in prayer that gives you the authority to get rid of these things. Um, we see in James as well that the prayer of the righteous person avails much and is able to g- get rid of sickness in those who are, s- who are sick because of their sin, which is another spiritual thing that uh, I don't feel very equipped to even talk about. Um but prayer is not a—I uh, heard a guy put it this way. Prayer is not preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think about the account of Job where Satan was roaming to and fro among, you know, over the earth. And mm-hmm. God's the one that called Satan's attention to Job, you know. And uh, you know, why did he do that? You know, was, What'd you have to go and do that yeah. for? <laughs> But was it to prove that people can still love and worship God in the midst of bad things that take place? I mean, he gave Satan freedom to an extent to inflict whatever he wanted. And yet, I think in the end, what we find is uh, what God was wanting from Job the whole time was just uh, faith, you know, without being able to see where where this was heading. And, um, you know, Job came out, obviously— I think stronger on the other end, certainly blessed. But um, I don't know. I, I think the story of Job was just a reminder that God may permit some things in order for us to be an example and a witness in this life, this in this broken world. Um, I think that's right. I also think, I mean, I <clears throat> during the time we were going through what we went through with my daughter, I sort of bathed myself in the book of Job. Mm. Um, and one of the things that eventually became apparent to me was that sometimes uh, suffering in the world is an artifact of conflict in the spiritual world. Mm. I mean, we call bad things that happen in the natural world acts of God, but what happened to Job's kids was actually satanic. Mm -hmm. It was done by Satan. And the, the fact of the matter is we're involved in a spiritual conflict, and it's not just what we see here. It's kind of bleeds over from the spirit world, and sometimes people die. Sometimes people physically die, and in reality, they're casualties of war. 
they're not just, you know, sad, you know, circumstances. In some cases, they're they're actually killed either through lies. You know, lies can result in physical death. I can attest to that. But they're either killed or they're or they're, you know, they die, and it's a, it's really an effect of spiritual conflict. We um we're right now at Lake Ridge. We're going through a series. We're calling Hesed, the Hebrew term for faithful, loyal, loving kindness. Um, God's Hesed, and then also our own acts of Hesed. And we're so we're studying the books Ruth and Esther. And in both of these books, we find people, uh, a woman, who you know, obviously the books are named after the female characters, but also men who act with peculiar faithfulness during trying times in their own national history. For Ruth, the question, um, you know, the fact that Ruth is written during a time of judges when there was so much corruption and evil and rebellion and judgment going on in the world, um, and yet here we have this story of Ruth, these, you know, couple, this, this couple who is loving the Lord and honoring his will and taking conspicuous steps of kindness toward one another um, and, and for the benefit of others. Uh, and then meanwhile, you've got Esther, you've got a couple people who are there in Babylonian captivity, and they're leveraging the influence that they have to honor the Lord and to do his bidding. I, I think we can take some lessons from those two books, and when it comes to answering this question, what are Christians supposed to do in a world as corrupt as we see um, the kind of evil and wickedness around us? And I think it's this. Uh, continue to act as though Christ really is king. Hmm. Continue to act as though he's king in the decisions you're making toward your families as husbands and and, and fathers and wives and mothers and brothers and sisters are you know, our homes can become little outposts of the kingdom. Uh, someone once said that living in the here and now, but, you know, sort of the kingdom already and yet not yet, we're still waiting on the arrival of the kingdom, that we are special ops. You know, we're, we're sort of the, the first that God sends in to blaze the way for the kingdom that's coming. And I think anytime we as Christians live and act in a fallen world as though Christ really is the one um, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And to the extent that we continue to tell the truth about that and live that truth, we're, we're, we're engaging in spiritual warfare, right? Mm-hmm. We're, 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 we're basically calling Satan's bluff that the, the evil he wants to bring about in the world, the influence that he and his minions want to um, uh, wage over the hearts and minds of men. Um, he, he has no power here. You know, I want to make sure I say this before we're through here today, too, because <clears throat> if anybody, I mean, I don't know how many people even listen to this podcast, but if anybody's listening that is feeling burdened and has been in the midst of spiritual oppression and warfare, I have, you know, a couple of big lessons for us were um, the centrality of gratitude and sort of finding your way out of the darkness. Um, 
remembering that notwithstanding the spiritual oppression that you may be experiencing, that you nevertheless still have things to be grateful for, and reminding yourself of that is really critical. But the other thing that was helpful to me personally was just the realization that's, that I really was engaged in a spiritual uh, conflict, and that it helped me to think differently about how to respond. And if, in fact, I was engaging in a battle at either directly or indirectly with Satan, then I could make myself useful by striking a blow at Satan where I could instead of just being miserable about all the things that I couldn't do. So um, so I actually sort of developed a whole more energetic and um, positive outlook on the possibilities in the midst of spiritual conflict by realizing that while I couldn't solve everything, I could strike a blow in some small way where I could strike a blow. And so I just resolved that every day I was going to get up and I was going to do something that was counter what Satan would approve of or want out of me. And it was that all of a sudden I real I remembered that I have agency. I didn't have to sit back and just allow things to happen. Even though I couldn't affect some things, I could affect other things. And so in my case, I got up. I'm a technology guy. I got up. I contributed a bunch of time uh, to do some technology stuff for an organization that was uh, very involved in propagating the scriptures around the world. And I knew that Satan would hate that. And so I actually devoted some time to helping that organization every day in in some ways out of pure ordinariness. But it was also because that was an area I could fight back in the battle. And 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 lastly, I just want to say this. I think one of the mistakes we make a lot is we, we blame God for bad things that happen. And I think it's important to remember that more often than not, the bad things that happen are, he's not the author of. You know, there's all kinds of questions about sovereignty and what he allows. I get that. But at the end of the day, Satan was the one who killed Job's kids. And Satan was the one who afflicted him. And um, and so we just need to remember where, be smart about where we assign the blame for spiritual conflict. I think, you know, so we're going to get some closing thoughts from you guys here in, in just a second. And, and I'd like to steer how we engage with our closing thoughts on this topic. It's a broad, sweeping topic and certainly not something that we've plumbed the depths of today. Um, and in some ways, the, th- the topics we've covered are a mystery. Maybe we should be more comfortable with some spiritual mystery in our lives. Um, but here's kind of here's, here's what I'm thinking, okay? I know that in the screw tape letters, one of the things that... Um, the, the demons, the devils sort of want to accomplish. They've, one of their greatest successes is when they can convince um, human agents that, that, they're, that, that they don't exist, that the demons themselves don't exist. I think that there's a lot in this world that can distract us from our primary struggle. Uh, c- careers, um, hopes and plans, dreams, any number of things can become... A distraction from um, the, our primary cosmic purpose in the world to to bear witness to who Christ is, uh, 
not just uh, in the way that we live, but in the truth that we're telling to the world around us. And so how would you guys like to engage with this thought? What can we be helping our people at Lake Ridge to think better about in that regard? How do we not lose sight of, in in the midst of all the things that we're uh, uh, striving toward and hoping to achieve that really, if it's not aimed in the directions that God wants it to be aimed in, um, then maybe we're somehow failing to engage sufficiently in the struggle. How would you engage with that? I'll take a stab at that with the concept of um, Satan seems to use the eyes above all other things when it comes to his mission of derailing God's mission. So we look at Genesis 3. The first thing that Satan wanted to do with Eve was to get her to look at the fruit instead of look towards God. Um, We uh, have so many examples in Scripture, uh, David as well, looking over to Bathsheba. It seems like uh, the enemy wants us, wants to influence us most profoundly through what we look at, through how we engage the world with our eyes. Um, maybe exactly contrary to the point you made earlier, Ben, about walking by faith and not by sight. He seems to be convinced that if he can get us to walk with our eyes instead of with our faith, then his victory will have been accomplished regardless of where we end up after that point. And so I think when we talk about our our dreams, our goals, uh, how we spend our time, how we spend our free time. So much of our lives are determined by the things we're looking at. You know, uh, Christians can't be uh, possessed by demons, but we can certainly be influenced by them. And so we can open ourselves up to a whole host of hurts if we allow our eyes to be the thing that directs our path. Yeah, someone, um, someone once said that, and in the final analysis, our life will be equal to whatever we paid attention to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so if we're if we're if we're trying to make our lives count for the kingdom and I want to keep this short because this is obviously a final comment. Right. Um, pay attention to where your eyes are going. Are your eyes directing you more towards Christ or are they distracting you in directions that seem to end up with you sinning or seem to end up with you distracted? You know, if you're constantly missing the mark on what you think God calls you to do, ask yourself, what was I looking at right before that? What about you guys? I think <clears throat> I, I agree with what Kyle had to say. Um, I think I think the reason for the influence of our eyes is, in some ways, an artifact of the material world we live in. We we're wired to believe the truth of what we see. If we if we if we weren't, we would have a debate on whether to catch the ball or let it hit our face, whether it was really coming, right? So when the baseball heads toward our face, we we don't have a debate. We assume the veracity of what we see with our eyes. And I think Satan takes advantage of that property to, to influence <coughs> us in ways uh, by showing us, by embedding falsehood in images. Uh, so I think that's really big. I think it, it's coupled, frankly, with what you said, Ben, about what we pay attention to. I think um, I think that uh, we need to avoid being distracted away from what is uh, good and beautiful and true. And in any way we possibly can, we need to 
uh, cultivate things that draw our attention back to what is good and beautiful and true. And, um, and I think, man, we are living in such a difficult time for that. I sat in a, Kyle's having this really awesome, smart to do a parent summit on Wednesday nights right now. And and they're just kind of basically planting a bunch of seeds with parents and about kind of what's going on with youth and, 2022 and kind of equipping them with a variety of things that are really helpful. And so I attended last night uh, just to listen in. And I told Kyle, I want to listen, not only what the guy was saying, who was presenting on Gen Z, but I really wanted to hear what the parents were saying. And man, I just came away so burdened because of what they're dealing with, with, with technology and the enticement and the, the relational struggles in the home with the use of technology. And, um, man, I think that I came away thinking there there's maybe there's time for a whole rethink, uh, about what we encourage people to do, how we ourselves leverage technology or not to, uh, build community because I mean, it's a huge issue for families and so I think it touches on the very things you guys were saying, what we see, what we pay attention to. And, um, yeah, I think those are both central to how we, how we fight the hmm. battle in some sense. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of drawing the First Corinthians 3 where Paul talks about our works being tested on that day. And there's a lot of stuff that can be burned up if our focus isn't where it needed to be or done out of wrong motives. And so I want to make sure that for myself and then just helping to lead others, um, we get our sights where they're supposed to be and and remember that uh, that we're called to build on the foundation of Christ in our life, that that's the, the starting point. And, uh, you know, not allow things that you all have thrown out there of dreams and goals to sideline us or be a distraction to us from not being the passionate witness we've been called to be or uh, for those things to develop an unwillingness in us to not be used by God and serving others um, at any given moment. And so I, I do see the ease with which we can be distracted by some of these things in, in our life. It's, we're sort of conditioned to think that way in America. <laughs> You know, the great American dream, you know, you deserve this, you're owed this. And so we start thinking in those ways, even within the church. And so I want to make sure that I've got a ready heart to obey Jesus um, and to put down anything that would be a a weight that would keep me at any given moment from being um, used in a way that is obedient and honoring to him. And I think... um, that, that that example in my own life and then making sure that the truth telling um, of these things in regards to what scripture teaches us is on the way because we're on a timeline right and it's heading somewhere and it's it's for a meeting with Jesus mm-hmm. and so I want to be able to stand there and um, you know not have a lot of regret I don't have any but I know that mm-hmm. there's probably been wasted opportunities in my life where i I've been distracted, and uh, so I want to make sure that I'm running the race like I need to. 
Well, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells a parable of the seed sown and the and the various results of that seed, seed being sown based on the quality of the soil that it falls on. And so to all of our points here today, I, I'd like to read some of what he says. He says, the meaning of the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Jesus, in his letters to the church of Revelation, says that to the one who overcomes, there will be given certain rewards. And so my prayer is that whether it's what we're seeing, paying attention to, falling in love with, cultivating an appetite for, whether it's the tests or the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, that whatever the test may be, that we would be those who overcome um, by the power of God's word and prayer, holding it fast in a sincere heart. As Christians, our actions affect things far beyond our field of vision. More than just the material world is impacting our lives. Christians can stand against evil both by unapologetically speaking what's true and by devoting ourselves to prayer. The lives we live have eternal significance. This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation and share your thoughts and ideas with us by emailing us at faithandculture at lakebridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.